Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you breaking news, big stories and expert insight and analysis into all things in the world of global football. I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined uh, on this Monday edition of our uh, podcast by uh, my normal uh, transfer guru, Mr. Duncan Castles. And as usual, Duncan has got some developing breaking news um, on a big story which has been rumbling over the past few days. As, of course, you will all know, uh, the Ajax captain and central defender, Matthias de Ligt, um, we expect him to leave Ajax this summer. And uh, he's been heavily linked with Manchester United, despite the fact one of the biggest clubs in the world, then briefed the media that they weren't interested in signing one of the best young players in the world. Now, that's a kind of conundrum in itself, Duncan, but um, I think you're able to maybe just pull apart the pieces for us and, and give us uh, the information which is actually relevant to this. Yeah, uh, we've had loads of questions about the lift, I mean, he, which is unsurprising because he's the top defender on the market. Um, most people consider him a future best central defender in the world. Um, there is uh, a, a basis at Ajax that they expect to sell him this summer. They're preparing to sell him this summer. They'd love him to stay if if uh, if he decided to. And interestingly, he gave a, an interview to Dutch um, TV over the weekend um, saying he, he didn't really have a dream club outside of Ajax and it wasn't impossible he would stay. I, I think that is highly unlikely given the circumstances. But he has been emphasising that he's not made a decision. He's been emphasising his interest in the Premier League. He's been saying that Spain is a big league too, but please don't even narrow it down to those two leagues because there are other big leagues too. Um, more importantly, Mino Raiola, who is one of the agents involved in the deal, as Raiola often does, manages to um, introduce himself into the representation of a highly valuable player um, when he's about to come on the market. So Raiola has been offering him around um, for some months now. Uh, people at Ajax expected the deal to be with Barcelona um, for a number of reasons, uh, uh, primary amongst them was De Ligt's friendship, close friendship with Frankie de Jong, who um, Barcelona have already secured uh, for this summer window. They did a deal in January, uh, initial 75 million euros with 11 million of performance-related bonuses. Uh, according to the people at Ajax, uh, De Ligt is wanted to go to play with De Jong at Barcelona. There had been extensive negotiations between the clubs and with uh, De Ligt's representatives. Barcelona felt they had a deal with both parties, um, which would have been in the region a, a similar kind of fee as uh, was being charged for De Jong. Now, the, the doubts that have come into that scenario are at... Um, at both ends, basically. If you talk to people at Ajax at present, they will say they still think De Ligt will end up at Barcelona, but they're not so sure um, that uh, Mino Raiola's uh, trying to increase the uh, salary that will be paid to De Ligt and also to increase the commission that comes to himself for doing the deal. He's offered the player... Um, to Manchester United and has, has been pushing through the media the idea that the Lick come to Manchester United and be a kind of saviour for the club who could um, 
uh, sort out their defence and uh, lead them back into the Champions League places. You'll have seen stories to that effect. Um, Manchester United, as you said, Ian, have been briefing over the weekend that they do not expect the deal to happen. Um, and I, I don't think that is a particular surprise because if you if you rationally address this, the only way the lift goes to Manchester United is for money. Um, why would you choose as your first move to go for a club that's outside of Champions League football that has a terrible defence? Um, so you would be exposed as a teenager coming in and shifting from your own country for the first time to to being expected to fix that defence. Also, um, we saw in the Champions League semi-final that the one major weakness remaining in the last game is his susceptibility under the high ball. Um, that, that tactic that Pochettino used in the second half uh, and if, if eventually turned the game around um, exposed the fact that he, he doesn't like direct balls straight at him um, and having to compete with a big centre forward. Um, so, you move to England and put yourself in a weak defence, expect to be targeted on those fronts. So you'd have to be brave um, to make that move. Um, Barcelona, obviously a better fit in terms of avoiding that kind of exposure, um, in terms of uh, joining a defence that already operates well. You'd be partner to uh, Gerard Pique um, and in a team that won the, the Spanish League comfortably. The Barcelona end, they are, say, they, they are saying they're worried because it has been presented to them that the offer on the table to De Ligt now stands at €14 million Euros a season in salary. They do not want to go above the figure they agreed with De Jong, which is about €8 to €9 million Euros a season. And One, because of the extra money, but more importantly, they realise that were they to sign a teenager um, and put him on a salary of €14 million, Euros, then a host of players at the club would come to them and say, look, you're paying this guy who's never even played a game in Spain this amount of money, you need to give me a pay rise too. So the ramifications for them are extremely expensive. Um, I think we should also factor in here that Manchester United are not the only Premier League club that Mino Raiola will try and sell the player to. There's been talk of Liverpool interest in De Ligt, which I think is correct, although I don't think their need is as great, uh, certainly not as great as Manchester United. What I do know is that Manchester City have pursued De Ligt for a long time. I know that um, several months ago, before uh, Barcelona went in strong for De Ligt, that people at Ajax felt City was his most likely destination. We now have Vincent Company announcing his retirement. Uh, sorry, his, uh, well, his retirement from Manchester City to move uh, to another league and become player coach at Anderlecht. And that was a decision that, according to um, uh, Manchester City's uh, senior executive, Caldun Al-Mubarak, uh, he only discovered after the Leicester City match. Um, he, he, his testimony is that company came to him after, after scoring that goal against Leicester City to explain that he had this offer from Anderlecht and was, was ready to go, which tells you it's happened quite soon. And it's something that uh, uh, Manchester City now have to reassess their transfer strategy in, uh, to the point of, do they want to have Stones, John Stones as their starting centre-back next season alongside Laporte? Or do they want to bring in um, another high-quality defender to compete for that position? Uh, and 
De Ligt, as I said, fits the, the profile for, for City in this sort of focus they've always had on, on signing the best of, of young talent, uh, being prepared to put high transfer fees down when the expectation that the player's value will increase. Um, and I think the, the key figure here is Mino Raiola. We, we saw what happened with Mino Raiola and Paul Pogba. We saw when he moved to Manchester United how he played all the major clubs in Europe off against each other to get the maximum salary and maximum um, commission for his player. Um, and we also saw that Raiola allowed that deal to run and run and run in the media for the purposes of advertising his client from the, the kind of commercial revenues that could be drawn in by having a Paul Pogba saga run throughout the summer. Um, the decision to go to Manchester United and the agreement to go to Manchester United was made much earlier than the deal was formally announced. So we, we should also bear that in mind while watching through the rest of the summer and that we could get to a stage where De Ligt and Raiola have agreed with one of the clubs, whether that be Barcelona, uh, whether it be Manchester City, whether it be someone else, uh, and they uh, they don't announce it because commercially it works for them. Um, but I think that's a, a summary of the situation. And what you, what you can tell from that is a decision hasn't been made. Um, the, this is very much a bargaining uh, scenario where money um, will have a big effect on the ultimate outcome. Um, and a, a balance of, of choosing money and what's best for the player's career uh, will have to be reached. And whether, whether they reach the right one will be, uh, will be fascinating in itself. We should also point out, Duncan, that De Ligt himself, um, who's a very mature 19-year-old, we should point out, gave an interview in a television interview in Holland as, as, as uh, soon as yesterday, in which he was very, very frank in saying, that there are lots of clubs interested in me, I know that, but it's not the case that I should speak about them. The Premier League does appeal to me. Um, however, my future is not settled, um, and it will be settled this summer, but no decision has been made. Um, that's to summarise his interview uh, in Holland. And um, my information, which came uh, around the time when, um, and some of our listeners may remember this, when Alexis Sanchez was being auctioned and City had agreed uh, this, the salary with, with um, Sanchez uh, and only for Manchester United to come in and usurp them at the last minute. And then when Sanchez's representative went back to City and said, uh, the terms of the deal have changed, he's got an offer from United now and, and so he's getting paid like 100 grand a week more than you were offering. Uh, <clears throat> Pep Guardiola sat down with his, his deputy, Mikel Arteta, and they made a decision that they would not pursue that transfer anymore because they felt it would upset the balance of their dressing room where they had a lot of players who had did amazing things for Manchester City over, this, over the years uh, and would continue to do that and yet they would be bringing in a guy <clears throat> on the highest salary at the club uh, which upsets the balance and upsets the harmony of the dressing room. So they decided not to pursue it. Let's look at De Ligt in that light as well. And he's only 19, um, if his agent and Mino Raiola is a ruthless, ruthless negotiator, if he wants 14 million euros for his client, then that would put him above many of City's much more established, much more decorated players. So I think there's a little bit, there'll be a little bit of unease, I think, in that sense about Manchester City and Delict. I think there's also unease at most clubs when Mino Raiola is involved. We saw the trouble that Paul Pogba caused for Jose Mourinho, which eventually effectively led to him being sacked by the club. And therefore, 
I think people are uh, in big clubs worried about Raiola's influence over his players because if the player is unhappy or the player is um, in a position where he feels like he's not being treated properly, he's not getting enough game time, his dogs aren't being walked enough on nice places, then you know that, that has a big effect. And Raiola will effectively cause trouble by making sure his player agitates in the dressing room to other players, you know, little meetings uh, here and there with other players to, to moan and whine and complain about the coach or this or that. Now that's something I think a lot of clubs don't want. And Manchester United, more than any other club, have suffered firsthand uh, from that. I wonder if the Royal influence, well, I don't wonder, I think it's got to be uh, an, a factor um, that even someone as, who's shown himself to be as naive as Ed Woodward would think, I don't want to go there again with yet another Raiola player and strengthen Raiola's influence in the Manchester City dressing room. That's something all the good Solskjaer, I'm sure, probably didn't want either. My information regarding the United negotiations, however, with, with over the delict transfer, were that um, Raiola was looking to do the same kind of commission uh, deal that he got for Pogba, which, as we know, was something around 24 million euros. Now, that was paid up front. Very, very unusual in football. An agent gets the entire commission up front. Normally, it's paid over the course of the player's contract in equal or more or less equal instalments. Now, of course, this, the, the consequences of paying up front are that you, you don't get a refund should the player leave a year later, <clears throat> meaning that if Pogba hadn't, didn't stay at United for his five-year contract, if the commission had been paid yearly, then Raiola would have gotten only maybe one or two years should Pogba have left after that time. The same for Delict. He wanted the money paid up front. Why shouldn't I want that money? You did it for Pogba. Why shouldn't I want it for Delict? And United said, no, we're not going to do business anymore that way. We need to have something in hand that we know we can try and rein you in with, i.e. we owe you money. So if you upset us or you upset your player and that upsets our club, <clears throat> then we know that we've got something over you. Now, these are the kind of fascinating little kind of details, I think, which go on uh, in transfer deals that I suppose only people kind of closest to them get to find that out. And I think that's a very, very complicated situation as far as the list is concerned. But I do... So I agree with you. I would not be surprised, Duncan, if he did end up at Manchester City, uh, given their upward um, momentum in terms of uh, certainly in England being dominant and then obviously uh, having a tilt at the Champions League next season, which Guardiola's already said uh, they will be judged on when not they win that. I think I think that calculation has to be essential for any club doing business with Mino Raiola now. He has a long enough track record in the transfer market um, for clubs to make the assessment that what motivates Raiola above all else is making as much money on each deal as quickly as possible and making money of course, uh, over the course of a player's um, career. Uh, we've seen with Pogba how quickly he was to offer the player to other clubs when there were issues with him in his second season at Manchester United. He even offered them to Manchester City um, uh, you know, a cross-town deal which had been the most aggravating possible. Um, if you, as Manchester United, are being offered the Ligt, um, when it's obviously not in, in, in his interest as a footballer to move to Manchester United at this stage, that you're not the most attractive club to him from a football perspective. And Raiola is the agent. You have to make the calculation that Raiola is probably thinking, I can take a large commission on this deal. I can get my player a higher 
um, salary at Manchester United than I can get elsewhere. So he will uh, be happy with me for uh, securing him that money. And then if things go wrong in a year or two years' time, and the chances are that they probably will go wrong because they've been going wrong at Manchester United every season for the last six seasons, I can agitate to move him to a bigger club um, on the basis that this club isn't good enough for his abilities and therefore make another commission and get him a pay rise uh, and make him happier off the back of that. If you're not calculating that in, when you're dealing with Mino Raiola at the moment, you're in danger of making a serious mistake in your purchase. And the flip side of Mino Raiola's way of doing business, Duncan, is the fact that one of his most high-profile and expensive clients, Romelu Lukaku, sacked him. Uh, not so long ago, because uh, he didn't feel that his career, interesting enough, not his uh, his bank balance, but his career had been badly affected, perhaps by advice that had been given. And indeed, he, we do believe that he is up for sale this summer and may well um, end up with Antonio Conte at Internazionale. So from, uh, from Manchester City and De and Manchester United, uh, Duncan, um, I believe that you have a quite um, significant development on potential future of David De Gea? Yeah, it's um, Manchester United uh, again, Ajax again. As we uh, reported on the transfer window recently, um, Manchester United have made an offer to Ajax uh, for their goalkeeper, Andre Onana, as a potential replacement for David De Gea. Um, I can tell you now that Ajax have inquired about the price that would be required to buy a replacement for Andre Anana. Um, the player in question is Mike Mainyan, uh, the goalkeeper at Lille, who's just been voted the best uh, goalkeeper in uh, Ligue 1 for his performances in, in their campaign, where they finished second to PSG. Um, 23-year-old, uh, about to play for or be called up for the French national team for the first time. Um, Ajax obviously see him as a successor to Onana should uh, Manchester United meet their asking price of £40 million for, uh, for their goalkeeper. Uh, and I've, I've started the work on trying to secure him. Um, he will be expensive um, and he may not be attainable for Ajax because I'm told there's interest in him from other clubs, uh, one of them being Paris Saint-Germain. Um, and uh, yeah, potentially he could actually see Magnon with the quality of his players being a potential replacement for Manchester United who have uh, scouted him a lot, uh, not necessarily focusing on Mike because, uh, but uh, looking at players like Nicola Pepe who, who they've also inquired about um, at Lille recently. So uh, it's this is a domino effect in the transfer market and you also see a club like Ajax um, although they've knocked back a bid and uh, are not uh, the preference would not be to sell Onana. They're a very pragmatic club. And when they uh, receive bids from wealthier clubs for their players, what they do is they set a price which they think is fair from their perspective uh, and which they can't turn down. If the club meets that price, they sell and they bring in someone they think is as good or could be better or even as better at present. Um, so again, you've got the process coming into play where De Gea could be leaving Manchester United this summer. Um, again, I can add that uh, although there have been indications from Manchester United that they want to have another conversation 
with De Gea's representatives about his wage demands. Um, that conversation has not yet taken place and there is still no um, promise from Manchester United that they're ready to meet uh, David De Gea's request to become to be put on equal salary with Alexis Sanchez as a reward for his uh, performances from the club over his, uh, his many seasons there. And of course, as we know, and we have reported on the Transfer Window podcast, um, our old friend Tam Tuchel at PSG um, <clears throat> has made it clear, and the club have made it clear, they are willing to meet David De Gea's wage demands for him to move there uh, this summer. Uh, I also saw Big Tam having a wee chat uh, at the grid yesterday in Monte Carlo for the uh, Monaco Grand Prix uh, and saying he has no idea if Kylian Mbappe and indeed Neymar will still be at the club next season, which I think maybe uh, wise not to have said or maybe had a, had a couple of Camparis uh, just before that particular conversation. Um, well, I think, I think he, what he said was he couldn't promise, which I, which I think is a fair fair stance yeah. when you're, we're dealing with PhD and dealing with the transfer market. We should note that um, he now has, uh, Paris have now announced uh, Tam's new contract that we yeah. talked about some months ago that uh, that was in place and that uh, Qatar's, the Emir Qatar's position was he wanted to continue with Tuchel and wouldn't be taking the opportunity to employ Mourinho or otherwise. Um, so they've now formally announced that uh, two-year extension to his deal and uh, he looks um, he looks safer than ever uh, going into next season. And interestingly as well, PSG, of course, state-owned by Qatar, <clears throat> were one of the subjects that the Manchester City chairman, Carl Dun al-Mubarak, brought up in what can only be said was a very interesting and also very provocative interview he gave to Manchester City's in-house uh, media uh, TV station. Um, it looked to me, Duncan, uh, that it was more staged than London Marathon. Um, however, uh, <clears throat> with uh, probably slightly less issues, but certainly still some very important ones. Um, of course, he seemed rattled by the um, fact that UEFA have now um, <clears throat> referred the FFP case of Manchester City to the adjudicatory panel. Uh, and I, it seemed to me, Duncan, that this was a direct and very forthright reply, even even the, a veiled threat to UEFA, perhaps, that, you know, don't mess with Man City because we are in the right and this will be proven to be the case. Yeah, I would recommend anyone interested in this issue to actually watch the video um, and watch Caldun Al-Mubarak um, say what he has to say about his club season, about transfers, which is interesting, but more importantly about... Um, the regulatory problems that the club faces. Um, he does these videos every year at the end of the season. They're always interesting to watch. Um, he is a politician. I mean, he is the, the right-hand man of uh, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, who runs the country. And Khal Dun is, is intimately involved in the running of Abu Dhabi, which is one of, one of the, uh, the most influential uh, Middle, Middle East states. So when you see him present himself, he, he, he does generally present himself in a very intelligent, um, reasoned, um, calm fashion. But this is different. Um, you can see, I think, um, the anger and frustration there. And it, it fits with what we've been hearing uh, from Manchester City um, for some months now, since 
the essentially since the football leaks evidence of their uh, rule breaking was presented to the public that they were going to be aggressive about this and they if uh, UEFA uh, and the other authorities and remember they're being investigated by FIFA the FA and the Premier League as well as UEFA simultaneously did not back off then Manchester City would fight back and um I think an extraordinary um, attack from him on Javier Tebas, the head of the Spanish League. Um, if you watch the video, you'll see that he is asked specifically about Tebas, not once, not twice, but three times. Um, he initially describes him as, uh, um, he says, in football, I think that people know what Tebas is about. Um, I think he sees himself or he plays the role of the politician. So I think he plays to his constituency, whatever that might be. So he says what I think he wants to say and what riles his constituency, but you can't take him too seriously, which is odd in that he does seem to take him very seriously and goes uh, on to uh, attack him and uh, suggest that um, that Tebas um, is being... Racially motivated in his his uh, criticism of Manchester City, um, he talks about uh, Tevas um, having made statements that uh, that that state the state owned football clubs, um, Manchester City and Paris Saint Germain, had um, major effects on European football, and that they were uh, skewing the balance of the entire European football structure. He talks about that. Um, uh, being uh, deeply wrong, Caldoun uh, uh, says, I think there's something deeply wrong in bringing ethnicity into the conversation. I mean, this is just ugly. I think the way he is combining teams just because of ethnicity, I find that very disturbing, to be honest. Which um, I think is, a, I find a very strange response because uh, having looked at what Teba said, um, I don't see any reference. Uh, explicit reference to ethnicity in Tebas's statements. Maybe I've missed it. Um, maybe someone at Manchester City can quote um, exactly what has um, riled um, the owners of Manchester City and, and made them um, accuse uh, Javier Tebas of bringing ethnicity into the conversation. What I see is um, Tebas talking about the two uh, clubs who are owned by Gulf states and funded by Gulf states um, who have had this uh, major effect on the, the football's transfer market, who've both broken the FFP rules and been punished for them in the past, um, and one of whom who is under, um, has been referred to the adjudicatory chamber of UEFA for uh, further breaches of those rules um, as clubs. Uh, and he, he says that they come from Gulf states, but he's not talking um, specifically about ethnicity there. He's merely talking, as far as I can see, about their owners. And if, if he's not allowed to mention that without being accused of, uh, of, uh, of an ugly conversation, it's an odd setup. Also, I find very strange um, some of the things that uh, Khaldun is using to defend his uh, Manchester City spending. Uh, he says, you know, they want to be judged on facts, and uh, he, he tries to 
present an argument that uh, that Manchester City aren't actually the biggest spenders in football, even though uh, if you look at go to academic institutes like um, the Swiss uh, CIS Football Observatory, they'll demonstrate that not only have Manchester City spent the most money on transfer fees since uh, 2010, well over a billion euros. They also have the most expensively assembled squad um, when you look at acquisition costs. Um, so those those facts are out there. But um, Caldoun's argument is because we do not have the most expensive player in world football at present or the most expensive player in a particular position, it's unfair to accuse us of inflating the market. I'll, I'll give you the the, the the quote he says here is, the re- but the reality is we didn't buy the most expensive player in the Premier League. We didn't buy the most expensive goalkeeper. We didn't buy the most expensive defender. We didn't buy the most expensive midfielder. We didn't buy the most expensive striker. So when people throw that, you know what they throw at us. I go back. Let's look at the facts. Let's look at the facts. Let's talk about the facts. Okay, let's talk about the facts. Uh, in Manchester City's first summer of ownership by Abu Dhabi, they broke the Premier League transfer record buying Robinho from Real Madrid. In the January following that, they agreed a deal with AC Milan to sign Kaká um, for a world record transfer fee. Milan were ready to sell by his own account Documents were all signed with Milan and Kaká himself backed out of it because he was sceptical about the project. So they were prepared to put down the biggest transfer fee ever, 100 million for Kaká at that time. Um, Goalkeeper Ederson, when they bought him, most expensive goalkeeper in the Premier League ever. Also the most expensive goalkeeper signing for over a decade. Um, Fullback. Walker and Mendy, two most expensive fullbacks ever signed in football when they signed them. Defenders, Mangala, John Stones, two most expensive defenders in the Premier League ever bought when they signed them. If you go through all of the Premier League's um, transfer fees for defenders, Manchester City have five of the seven most expensive uh, fees for uh, defenders ever paid. Midfielder, Kevin De Bruyne, most expensive midfielder ever bought when they signed him. Defensive midfielder, Fernandinho, most expensive uh, defensive midfielder ever bought in the Premier League when they bought them. On top of this, we know the other players they have who weren't the most expensive when they bought them, but are some of the most expensive in the game. So you've got Leroy Sani, um, Aguero, Raheem Sterling, all huge fees. Bernardo Silva, 75 million euros, including bonuses. Another huge fee. He was only a backup for them last season. The the idea that um, you can portray Manchester City as a club who haven't inflated the transfer market is just ridiculous. And I'm really surprised that Caldo Malbarak, who's an intelligent man, who has handled and and organised that club um, very rationally in a very clever business sense to get them in a position they've come to. I'm surprised that he goes out on the offensive on a club channel, trying to portray um, their critics as saying stuff that's incorrect about them. And he puts forward arguments which are so easy to deconstruct. Well, Duncan, I think it's important to remember as well that 
this was an interview with effectively a Manchester City employee asking the questions. So I think it's fair to assume that the agenda was very much set before uh, any filming took place. <clears throat> it seems to me as well that um, th th you ask yourself, who are the audience for this particular audience? Who is he trying to convince? Well, I think mainly Manchester City fans who, as we know, can be quite tetchy about people questioning the validity of their success in football because of the amount of money invested, et cetera, et cetera. So by cleverly, uh, let's just say, skewing the facts, as someone else once said in this conversation about <laughs> the highest paid play, highest uh, transfer fees, he's able to present a, a different um, but still accurate PR um, attack, if you like, on those who are uh, believed to be the enemies of Manchester City. The Teba stuff, I find the most concerning um, in the sense that um, what you rightly point out, there are inferences there which go way beyond what Tebas actually said. But one of the quotes that struck me probably as much as any was one where he said, if we are judged on the facts, then City will prevail. Now, for those of you who saw the epic version of JFK, think about Harrison Ford in that ma magic moment where he says, let justice prevail, the heavens fall. It's almost like it's us against them. We are, you know, we we are city. We do what we want, type thing. So it's this this you know very very sort of siege mentality, which clearly is being you know pointed at, at UEFA, at FIFA as well, at everyone else in the Premier League, at Olivier Tebas, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's, it's almost like setting the, the tone of for for conflict, and I, I think you know we, that's something we can do without. I don't think that's even necessary. And as you said, uh, ref referred to, and I absolutely um, uh, believe in any, I've had a couple of encounters with um, Khaldun al-Mubarak, um, and he comes across as a very charming, very intelligent, very reflective man. So to see him in that angry, frustrated state was quite, well, you know, it was, it was something very telling, I think, Duncan, um, about that as far as um, what's going to happen next. What do you think happens next with this? I mean, it seems to me that if, if we strip away everything, it looks like a case of the ancien regime of you know the, the greats of European football, obviously Spain being Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich in Germany. Clubs in the Premier League, who we know are actively <clears throat> canvassing UEFA to punish City, Liverpool, Manchester United, um, Spurs, uh, Chelsea. And, uh, and also, of course, you look to other clubs uh, in, in, that, in the ECA um, unit who are looking for UEFA to take a stance here. And said it's, it seems to me that, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of a watershed moment for football in, in Europe now as to what actually happens, because it will decide what will happen in the future as well. I think so. And I think there's a, there was another element in that video that was very interesting where um, Carl Doon tried to rally the Premier League behind him. Um, yes. <laughs> he he presented, presented it as an attack on the Premier League. Um, did he not and say, Premier... for God's sake, or, or words to, to that effect, for God's sake, don't, it's not just about Manchester City, this is about the Premier League. Yes, uh, he said, I hope people start seeing this and start. I know, I know people don't want to defend Manchester City, but for God's sake, start defending this league. That was how he finished. Now, <laughs> what I found particularly amusing was he preceded that by um, he had been questioned 
about uh, essentially about other Premier League teams going after Manchester City. And he preceded that by saying, um, we know when you other Premier League chief executives and owners brief against us, you can't keep it quiet because we find these things out. So, so he made this kind of, this kind of um, authoritarian thing about, it's like, I know what you're saying about me. I know what you're doing behind my back, but please rally behind me because this is attacking the Premier I, League. I think he's been reading too much George Orwell personally. I'm not sure. I think there's, there's a lot of conspiracy there uh, and paranoia as well. Um, although, of course, Orwell did it in a very much um, more um, subtle tone. Um, I, think, I think the key element here is you have to go back to Abu Dhabi as a country. As I said, Khaldun al-Mubarak is not, his primary role is not to run Manchester City Football Club. His primary role is to help the crown prince of Abu Dhabi run a country. That country is not a democracy. It is effectively a constitutional monarchy in which the royal family decide how the country is run. Therefore, they are used to getting their own way in the country. They're used to being able to decide how things happen and they're used to, be, to being able to put down dissent against what happens. And essentially, they're now in a position where one of their key projects, one of their, you know, it's a PR project, it's a political project. That's why they bought Manchester City. It was, for reasons we've discussed in the podcast many times, it was to, to promote the name of Abu Dhabi and to give themselves um, soft power. Uh, uh, globally, one of that that project is now turned into one where they're um, receiving resistance, where um, authorities are saying you cannot behave the way you're doing. You signed up to these rules, and we have evidence that you broke the rules. And now we are there are people within our organisations and other people who adhere to these rules who want to see you punished for it. And I think what we're seeing is those people who are used to running a country without um, democracy being involved, uh, objecting to their decisions and their actions being questioned. Uh, and, and they perceive it as an attack. And now they're attacking back. And, and I think you're right. The response is going to be um, very important to the future of European football. Because if, if UEFA do not punish Manchester City for... Uh, transgressions that have been documented publicly uh, and they cannot provide a, a good reason for not doing so, I think financial fair play is probably dead. Uh, and and the, the, you know, the essence of a, a key competition rule in the Champions League is probably dead because no one will take it seriously from now on. So it is a, it is a, a pivotal, pivotal point in European football. I should just add one thing, because I think this is important. I think it's been missed in the reporting on, um, on this attack on Tebes today, is that Javier Tebes um, last week um, talked about Manchester City and FFP. And according to him, Manchester City, when he, when, uh, when he uh, two years previously had, um, had, had criticised their behaviour, uh, threatened him with legal action. I'll just I'll give, give you the quote from Tebas here. During Soccer X two years ago, I said they, Manchester City, weren't living up to FFP standards. City sent me faxes and legal documents saying that they were going to put me in front of a court in Manchester if I didn't correct my statements. I still haven't gone to court in Manchester, 
nor have I been called to present myself there. So I reaffirm what I said on that day. I am not surprised, and he's referring to them, uh, the, the current uh, investigation by UEFA. What's surprising is that it's taken so long to come to light. It's been happening for a while. The fight for the soul of football people, that's what this is. And I, suppose, I know if you're a Manchester City fan, you're not going to like that, like to hear that. But I think Duncan's done a very, very uh, forensic uh, job there in presenting the facts. In fact, I almost thought Rafa Benitez was going to be joining him at uh, one second over his shoulder to do a few more. Um, and very maybe, interesting. Maybe, maybe Caldun is going to hire Rafa. Um, since <laughs> yeah. Well, probably not as manager, though, maybe as you know, something else. Uh, maybe he could serve you know, snacks or something in the boardroom. So, or from uh, one um, state-owned club to very interesting news being reported this morning in the Sun newspaper that uh, Newcastle United are apparently in talks to um, sell the club. Well, Mike Ashley, their owner, is in talks to sell the club. It's a, a said to be a £350 million deal um, with uh, a cousin, interestingly, of Sheikh Mansour. Uh, um, his name is Sheikh Khalid bin Zahed Al Nehayan. Now, this is another very wealthy member of the the uh, Abu Dhabi royal family. Um, we know that actually wants to sell. Um, I am told from making some calls this morning that uh, it is the case that negotiations have taken place. So, so I'm told, and that the Premier League have been f- been sent a form of intention to sell, which is part of the due process. Now. This would bring many problematic questions, Duncan, um, because UEFA rules are quite clear about any dual ownership of uh, clubs who play in the same competition, in this case, the Premier League with Newcastle and Manchester City. However, those rules only extend to a company, uh, so therefore uh, um, an entity which owns both and can be shown to specifically own both, or an individual. Now, so neither is the case in this particular report in terms of um, the relationship between um, uh, Sheikh Mansour and, uh, and, and Sheikh uh, Khaled bin Zayed al-Nehayan. So with the, with the grey the gray area there, Duncan, is there a way, you know, do you think this is possible? Do you think it's probable? Because I know that you've had some, some conflicting uh, pieces of information yourself uh, on this story today. I think where... Uh, Sheikh Khaled actually to do a deal with Mike Ashley and buy Newcastle United, there would be a way to structure the ownership um, so it didn't uh, conflict with those um, those rules. Um, however, it would be from a PR perspective extremely difficult because um, you'd have two members of the same royal family owning um, two clubs in the Premier League. And although Manchester City have always tried to depict Sheikh Mansour as the sole owner of Manchester City, there's a, a general acceptance that actually it's a state project, that the real um, force and decision-making at Manchester City and funding at Manchester City is uh, Sheikh Mohammed, the Crown Prince. And, you know, there's plenty of evidence to that effect in the sense that... Uh, Khaldun al-Mubarak, who we've just been talking to, is the senior director at Manchester City and he is the right-hand man, as I've just said, to um, the Crown Prince. Therefore, why would the right-hand man to the Crown Prince, who's central to Abu Dhabi governance, 
he'll be wasting his time with the, the football club of his brother. I think more importantly here, there's a lot of scepticism that this deal is actually in place and going to go through. Talking to people um, who are regularly involved in the, the, the purchase of football clubs, um, they are saying that they don't think this is um, a done deal. They think there probably has been discussions with um, Sheikh Khaled, but that um, Newcastle um, are happy for that story to go out. Why are they happy? Because Mike Ashley's been trying to sell the club. Um, it establishes a, a price. Um, £350 million is what's being talked about. Uh, that would probably be the enterprise value, which essentially is the cost of, of buying the shares, in this case, around £250 million, plus the cost of um, uh, paying out Mike Ashley's debt, which is around £111 million. And, and talking to other people who have looked at, at, at uh, Newcastle United recently and tried to put together takeovers of the club, um, what I'm told is the minimum price for the equity, for the shares that Mike Ashley has been asking for is £250 million. So that fits. Um, I think also talking to people uh, in Abu Dhabi, they would be surprised if at this stage Abu Dhabi would sanction, um, allow another member of the royal family, even if he was doing it off his own back, to buy an English Premier League club because of the PR issues involved. You know, if, if, if you have two going, there are going to be question marks about Abu Dhabi owning not one, but two. Um, you would expect a lot of spending on players expect an inflationary effect. The questions you're asking, is this really the time to allow that to happen when they're under investigation from all four football uh, regulatory authorities? Or maybe, Duncan, that's, or maybe, Duncan, that's exactly why, the, why it's happening. It's, a, it's, but, an, it's another slap in the face, isn't it, to the authorities? Look, that, we are Abu Dhabi, we do what we want. Yeah, that's the, the alternative interpretation would be actually they're saying well, stuff you, we're going to buy another one and we do what we want. But what I'm hearing both from people in the city and from people in Abu Dhabi is that they have scepticism about it because they don't think Abu Dhabi would um, allow that to go on. Probably the other interesting element here is that Sheikh Khaled, according to a source in Abu Dhabi, is not one of the most prominent members of the royal family um, by any stretch of the imagination. He doesn't own a football club in UAE, which most of uh, a, a large number of the royal family do. Sheikh Mansour has um, ownership of, uh, of Al Jazeera, for example, the club where um, uh, Roberto Mancini received uh, uh, off, uh, well, a, a, an additional salary um, supposedly for work he was doing for Al Jazeera um, while he was Manchester City coach, which people have um, questioned as a way of bypassing FFP and when, will probably form part of UEFA's case against Manchester City coming up. So in summation, there's a lot of scepticism about this. Um, I, I, would, uh, I would be patient uh, if I was a Newcastle United fan. I would not get too excited. Um, what's clear is that um, Ashley is actively trying to sell the club, um, but he's been doing that for over two years now. Um, so whether he can get a deal through, um, 
and whether the circumstances are right to buy a club like Newcastle United um, is open for question. It's a lot harder these days to when you buy a football club to turn them into a force because you have Premier League financial fair play rules which limit um, additional spending on uh, transfer fees and salaries uh, according to new revenue uh, naturally generated by the club. So, for example, commercial income. Obviously, you could go down the Manchester City route and, uh, and secure a lot of commercial sponsors who have links to the owners. But that kind of thing is going to be under the microscope these days. So, yeah, don't. I think the Geordie Army should should uh, should temper their enthusiasm here and wait and see if um, anything, if it, if proper persons test goes through at the Premier League and the documents go through and the ownership actually changes hands. There is one other theory, Duncan, which um, I'm inspired to um, put forward as a result of. Um, our friend Kevin Affleck appearing, the former Abu Dhabi employee and indeed uh, liaison person for Manchester City as well, uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. And I just wonder if this story is the biggest birthday present spoiler ever seen, that Sheikh Khalid was being bought Newcastle United for his birthday by one of his mates, um, given what we heard about Yaya Touri and, <laughs> and the, son of un- the son of unwrapped it for him before his birthday's even come along. <laughs> so there we'll, we'll leave the tune chat with that I'm, I'm with Duncan I think if you're in the tune army uh, you know just set your arms to rest uh, this is a story that's been going on for two years as you all know um, since I actually first put the club up for sale and we all know he's going nowhere unless he gets his money so um, uh, to be fair if you're going to go anywhere to get that kind of money then Abu Dhabi's probably going to be your first starting point so um, we shall see how that one develops before we draw this particular podcast to a close, it's time to do the Monday Heroes and Villains segment, which we know you all like. Um, I'm going to go first uh, because that's my progress because I'm talking right now. And my hero is going to be Claudio Ranieri. And I hope if any of you get the chance, go to social media and search for Claudio Ranieri, Roma, and his final match in charge uh, in Serie A on Sunday, where the, um, the uh, Roman faithful of Roma uh, effectively sung a, a really very, very sweet and, and heartfelt um, sort of goodbye to him about the fact that they, when he arrived, they were on their knees and now uh, they, they have risen and he will always be in their heart. And I, I like this because um, Claudio Ranieri is a good guy and I think he's, uh, in Rome, he's reclaimed some of the reputation uh, that was damaged by the way he left Leicester City and obviously by the way he started and left Fulham. So uh, well done, Claudio Ranieri. You're the transfer window's hero of this week. Duncan, can you provide us with someone with a sharp pointy collar and, you know, I don't know, dodgy hat as a villain? Uh, uh, I think the, the villain villain this week is obvious. Um, it's the man who introduced the penalty shootout into football. Um, I think oh, anyone uh, definitely, watched. definitely. <laughs> Scottish Scottish Premiership playoff, uh, Dundee United denied their, their rightful place in the, in the top division by a penalty shootout in which we managed not to score even a single penalty. <laughs> Um, and I, I, as a Dundee United fan, I'm finding it very hard to remember any single match in our history in which we won a penalty shootout. So I think they should be removed forthwith and um, games of that order should be decided on who's got the most attractive colour of shirt and we win every time. Tangerine? Really? 
for those of you who don't, tangerine football shirt. Tangerine. It's like for those of you who are in, unfamiliar, next time you bite into a Jaffa cake, yeah, that's that's the colour of Dundee United strip, right there on the top level. Um, and for those who also don't know that the nickname, and please, Duncan, just tell us why they're called the Arabs. Ah, that's um, it's, a, it's a good story. This we are called the Arabs because um, in the sixties uh, there was a very cold stretch uh, in which no games were able to play be played um, for I think several weeks, and um, uh, our owners took the extraordinary measure of melting the snow on the pitch with a with a tar burner. Um, and what they I think what they ended up doing was destroying the grass. So they, they, funny that. They then covered it with sand um, to enable the, the match to go forward. And, and of course, us being Dundee United, we won the game and, um, and our uh, lesser rivals accused us of being Arabs um, because we had won by playing on sand. And we took that. What was regarded as a derogatory uh, phrase at the time um, as a badge of honour. And um, one of uh, our... Uh, uh, it became the nickname of the fans, and we used to, when I was uh, younger, I, I had a, a, a T-shirt um, which was uh, produced by the Dundee United Supporters Club, which uh, which said "Proud to be an Arab" on it. So, um, so there you they, go, Manchester City fans who don't like Duncan. There you go. You've learned something new <laughs> today. Proud, proud to be an Arab. Proud to be an Arab, no indeed. And no ethnicity seen, issues here whatsoever. And having seen that, that penalty shootout, I suggest your players were more like sand dancers uh, yesterday. Anyway, we're going to close this uh, Monday edition of the Transfer Window podcast. However, if you want to continue the debate, then please do on social media. We have our own Transfer Window uh, podcast um, account, at Transfer Window, funnily enough. And Duncan is on at Duncan Castles. I am, as usual, obfuscating on at Garbo SJ. Now, if you like the podcast, we know thousands of you do, and we love uh, our community. We want to make it grow it and want to make it bigger so as more people can get involved in the debate. Then please get on to iTunes, give us a five-star review, as that helps us to reach more people more quickly, and we all get the benefit of that. So this that's all for today. For Monday, we will be back on Wednesday with your questions answered. Until then, thanks for listening.